0: For the our passage of Scripture this morning is taken from the New Testament book of First John, chapters three verses 16 to 18, and then chapter four verses seven to 12. By this, we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, if anyone has the world's goods. And sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in that person? Little children, let us not love in word and in talk, but in deed and in truth. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love doesn't know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another then God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. It's God's word to us His people. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, I would invite you to take uh, your Bible and turn it to the New Testament book of 1 John. If you brought a Bible with you, that's where we're going to be for the majority of our time this morning. If you did not happen to bring a Bible with you, there's one in the rack in the pew in front of you. You are... Welcome to use this morning. It'll be on page, I believe it's 863 or thereabouts in that Bible, First John chapter three. And as you're turning your Bibles, there, I want to start with a question. There was a word that um, occurred a number of times over and over again in the passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, and that word was the word love. <laughs> yes, over and over and over again. Big word, important word. It's a word we still use a lot today. Question is simply this: How do you know? That someone loves you? That's a big one. Uh, Every star-struck young man or young lady who's ever had a crush on somebody else has asked that question, does he love me, does she love me? It's a big question. And it relates not only to the passage of Scripture we're looking at this morning, but to this entire uh, series of sermons, this brief sermon series that we've been in coming out of Easter, which was just a couple of weeks ago. Now, to a pastor, you do a lot to prepare for Easter. It's like one of the biggest days in the year, so I don't know if it's the same as it is for me as it is for you, but to me, Easter feels like it was two months ago. It actually wasn't. Just a few weeks ago, we studied as a church the gospel of Mark, and we concluded that study on Easter Sunday morning with the account of Jesus' resurrection, and the whole point of that was to celebrate what God has done for us. What God has done for us. He came to this earth as a person. He lived in our place. He died in our place, and he rose again from the dead. That's the good news. That's the gospel, what God has done for us. And we rightly celebrated that Easter Sunday morning. Now what we've been doing since for these last couple of weeks is we've been in a short topical series of sermons that's exploring what the Bible tells us about our response to what God did for us. If the gospel's all about what God did for us, then what do we do in response? And it turns out there are some things we do. So two Sundays ago, we looked at what the Bible teaches us about repentance and faith. Those are the two words that it uses. Leaving our old life and clinging to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And we talked a lot extensively about what both of those things mean two weeks ago. But then we ended by recognizing a great truth that the Bible communicates to us. And that is simply this. When we repent and believe, God does not just make us his people, although we are that. And he doesn't just make us his worshipers, although we are that. And he doesn't just make us his servants, although we are that. The great news is that God makes us his family. His family. He says, "When you respond to the gospel in faith and repentance, then you become the children of God." Which is why we've titled this series of sermons "Welcome Home." Everything that we're talking about doing in response to the gospel is under the uh, the the understanding, the reality that God has made us part of His family. And so last week we began to look at how are we as a modern church, like Harvest Community Church, how are we supposed to experience the reality of being God's family? How does that relate to the way that we live life together? And we began by looking at the importance of formally committing to one another. And we call that formal commitment church membership. That's what church membership is. We formally commit to a local body of believers that I'm in it with you, and you're in it with me. We're part of God's family, so we're gonna live that out now. We'll be living it out for all eternity, but we get to start living it out now as brothers and sisters, and we talked about why that was so important last week, along with a lot of uh, insights into what kind of a church to join and why you should leave a church. That was all last Sunday. Now, this morning, we wanna go one step further in saying, okay, if there's been a formal commitment How do we make sure that that formal commitment isn't just a name on a membership roll somewhere? How do we make sure it's not just an idea? How do we live out our commitment to one another as Christians in light of the fact that God has made us part of his family when we repented and believed in the gospel? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And it's not at all surprising that right at the center of that is a discussion about love because Jesus put love at the center of the discussion for his followers almost from the get-go. Uh, John chapter 13 through 17 is a section of the Bible that Bible scholars call the upper room discourse. It was the night before Jesus was crucified, and he gathered his men together. He had the Passover meal with them, as was Jewish custom in that day, and afterwards he told them many things there, and they were just alone in that upper room, about what they were going to need to do in light of his impending departure. He was about to leave them. They didn't quite get that. They were still wrapping their heads around that, but he knew what was going to happen. He knew he was going to be killed. He knew he was going to rise again. He knew they would see him briefly a couple of times after he rose again just to prove that he really was alive, but then he was taken off for good, and the whole mission of the church was going to be in their hands. And so he starts off this important set of instructions this way. In John chapter 13, verse 34, he says to his men, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. Now, when he says a new commandment, he doesn't mean like this is contradictory to anything that that God had said before this. He's not saying we're throwing out the old and coming in with the new. He means new in the sense that everything's about to change here, guys. They've been literally following him for about three years at this point, and he's about to depart. And so following Jesus for them meant kind of just going where he goes and doing what he's doing. But he's like, I'm about to leave. So it's, there's a new ball game in town. You guys are going to have to pick up and carry on from here. Here's the essence of what you need to know, guys. You ready? And he gives them three words. Love one another. That's it that's the master plan (laughs) i mean jesus is about to launch a worldwide enterprise here it's interesting he doesn't tell them to organize he doesn't tell them to strategize he doesn't tell them to raise capital he doesn't tell them to market test the message he says here's what you guys need to know love one another The essence of the Christian life, the essence of what church life is intended to be by our Lord is that you and I, as members of his family, would be loving one another. So if that's so important, I mean, what does that mean? Obviously, this is a pretty big deal to Jesus. What does he mean when he says love one another? The word love conjures up many images and feelings and experiences and memories in each one of us, and if I could just kind of throw that word love out there and get like an instant capture and somehow put it up on the screen of what every one of us thought of, I'm sure we'd have like thousands of different responses to that word. So when Jesus said love one another, what did he have in mind? What did he mean? What did he intend by those three simple words? Well, fortunately, we're not left in the dark on that. Uh, The Bible gives us a lot of insight into that. In fact, one of the guys who was there with Jesus that night was the Apostle John. And he picks up on this command in John chapter 13, uh, this command from Jesus, and he fleshes it out in much greater detail in a New Testament book, a letter that we know by the name of 1 John, the first letter from the Apostle John. And in the process of unpacking, in these couple paragraphs that we just read a few moments ago, unpacking what Jesus has in mind when he says love one another, we're going to encounter three pretty common misunderstandings that modern people tend to have about the idea of love and the Bible's going to give us kind of a different little bit of a different angle on each one of those three so with that in mind let's dive right in to our passage the first understanding comes right away we started in chapter 3 verses 16 to 18 the misunderstanding would be simply this that when we're talking about love we're primarily talking about how we feel toward other people That's kind of modern-day usage. I mean, we understand there's more to feelings than just love. It should be backed up with actions and other things. But when most people use the word love nowadays, initially we're mainly kind of addressing our feelings toward another person. If I say, I love my wife, you probably first immediately, without even thinking about it, understand me to be saying, I feel very strongly and very positively toward her, which I do because she's fabulous. Sorry, I'll stop drawing attention to her. Um... It's a feeling. It's, it's, it's an expression of my heart toward another person. And, and the Bible starts talking about it. It puts a different angle on that. It puts a different slant on it. It says love is not primarily about our feelings toward other people. It's primarily about our actions toward other people. And specifically the action of when I sacrifice, when I choose to go without something, give something up for the benefit of another person out of love, then that, the Bible says, is really the essence of love. Love is a verb more than it is a noun. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, that there is no emotion involved in love at all. We shouldn't understand the Bible to be saying, like, well, the, the right way to love somebody is just to say, I'm going to sacrifice something for your good, and like, I don't really care about you at all, I'm just going to do it because it's my duty, and like, I, I don't care about you, but I'm just going to do this. That, that's not love. There's always affection involved in love, but you see, the essence of what the Bible is getting at here is that love is action. C.S. Lewis, uh, who is a scholar in the first half of the th- the 20th century and uh, a linguist pointed out that in the Greek language, the New Testament was written in the first century, originally in the Greek language, and back then they actually had four different words to describe commonly that they used to describe love and relationships. We can only have one. We say love. And if you want to know what kind of love I'm talking about, I have to add a bunch of other words to it to explain myself. But they actually had four different words for love and relationships. And there was some overlap between them, but generally they were pretty distinct. And for just a super fast uh, summary kind of flyover, the four were basically this. First they had a word for what we might call a family love. This is broadly based on just kind of familiarity you know we're we're related to each other we were raised in the same house we always go to the same family reunions there's just that sense of we're in the same thing together and they had a word for that the word was storge that was the love that we would have within families most commonly they also had a, a different word for what you might call a friendship type of love when you have deep, close friends and you really care about your friends. There's nothing romantic involved in it, and you're not even related. This is the kind of love you develop for people on the basis of of shared experiences and common values and those kinds of things, when people are in the same season of life, and they're going through the same stuff, and you have a similar philosophy of life, and you kind of all think alike, and you similar faith commitments, then suddenly those, those commonalities can become the basis of really strong friendships. And that was this word phileo, that's that kind of love. Thirdly, they had a, a word for a romantic type of love. Uh, eros was the word they used for that. This is kind of normally the default understanding of the way we use the word love in modern day. If we talk about people loving other people or being in love, we're immediately thinking about like, oh, boy meets girl, like the love of a husband and a wife or a boyfriend and a girlfriend or something like that. And that romantic type of love they had a word for, it. but there was a fourth word as well. And many of you know the word was agape. And for lack of a better term, this is unconditional love, or you might also say self-sacrificial love. This is the kind of love the Bible commands Christians to have toward everybody, not because we're related, not because we have common interests, not because we're romantically attracted to one another. It's not romantic, and it's not based on common interest. It is simply a love we have for other people, and it shows itself, it manifests itself in action. When I lay down my Life. When I lay down something in my life, when I go without for your benefit, then, the Bible says, you are loving. Now, four different kinds of love, why is this important? It's important for this reason. When Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, love one another, he used this fourth word. Among my followers, he says, be sacrificially devoted to one another's good. Because you love each other. And in the entire passage we're looking at in First John here, chapters 3 and 4, every single time that word love appears, and you heard it earlier, it's over and over and over again. Every single time, it's this word. The love that Jesus is calling us to is this kind of self-sacrificial, unconditional love. It's not based on any other kind of commonality. It is based on God's love for us. You see this right away in verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, where we started reading. By this, the Bible says, we know love. Here's how you know that God loves us He laid down His life for us. That's where you see the love of God. I mean, it's interesting. It doesn't say, We know that God loves us because He has strong, loving feelings towards us, He has affection for us. Although He does, and the Bible's very clear about that. God does have feelings of affection for His people. But John is telling us here, don't hold on to that, to know absolutely that God loves you. And don't even just hold on to what God wrote about his affections, because there are many passages of Scripture where God describes the love and the affection that he has toward his people. And we rightly read and quote and sometimes even memorize those verses of the Bible and hold on to them as, as evidence that God loves us, and we should. But as good as that is, even that's not the ultimate reason he says you want the unshakable knowledge that god loves you and will never depart from you look at what he did that's your unchangeable unshakable reality look at what he did he came to this earth as a man and he died for us that's how we know god's love he sacrificed and so this is the way that God loves us. And then he goes on and he says in verses 17 and 18, we're then supposed to love one another the same way. That's Jesus' command. Just as I've loved you, so you love one another. And I'm really grateful in verse 17 that, that John takes a, a very pragmatic turn and all this kind of high lofty language about being willing to lay down your life for somebody else. Like I, I should be willing to die for you if I love you and it's for your good. But very few people actually have to die for other people in the course of life. Very few people are really called upon to lay down their lives. And so what he does to illustrate how this works within a church is he says, not that you're supposed to go out and die young for everybody, although presumably if that's what God called me to do, that's what I should do in the name of love. But here's what he calls almost everybody to do. He gives a practical example of material possessions. Verse 17, he says, if anyone, speaking in a church here, church context, if anyone has the world's goods, I have money, I have food, I have possessions, And he sees his brother, another Christian, in need, yet he closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in that person? And so the idea is that in every single way, whether the sacrifices seem large or small, there are ways I can choose to give up or go without for the benefit of Christian brothers and sisters around me, and I should delight to do that. That's what it means to love one another and by the way, going back to last Sunday, this is why things like regular church participation and attendance, as well as actively pursuing relationships with other Christians, we've taken those things and we've written them into our membership covenant here at Harvest. So do a lot of churches. Like when you become a member, like I'm, I'm, I'm pledging to say, yeah, I'm going to be here regularly. I'm going to physically be present, And and I'm also going to pursue relationships with people. Now, why do we do that? Just because we want people to come to church? I mean, like, that one's not that hard to see through, right? You don't have to be too cynical or skeptical to say, yeah, right. There's the church leaders telling everybody they should go to church. Whew, couldn't see that one coming. Is that why it's in there? Just because, you know, you ought to go to church? That's not it at all. The reason those things are in our membership covenant is for this reason. It's for the sake of love. Because, you see, if love is sacrificially meeting the needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ, I have to know what those needs are before I can meet them. In fact, in verse 17, when he says, when it has the world's good and sees his brother in need, that word seize is, is like, it can actually be translated, observe. I mean, it sort of implies that it's not just, you know, you happen to be standing in the atrium and somebody walks by and you notice his coat is threadbare, so you say, oh, he probably needs a new coat, I'm going to go meet that need. I mean, that can happen, but, but the idea here that's sort of implied is that you're, you're engaged with people enough and on a regular basis that, that you have an opportunity to, to see what their needs are and to know which needs are legitimate and which needs are not and to say, this person is really dealing with something in their life and I know that I can help meet that need. Now this is, this kind of time investment is not only risky, as Jordan said earlier, it's also expensive, Um, it's costly, especially in terms of time and energy. And this is hugely challenging these days for many of us, particularly as suburban American families, because we are facing unprecedented pressures and demands on our time, unprecedented. And this isn't news, really. I'm sure, to anybody in this room. I mean, whether it's employers who regularly are expecting employees to put in 40, 45, 50-plus hours a week, just as the baseline standard, and or to be on call at any time, 24-7, 365, it almost seems like, and be ready to drop whatever you're doing to be available to the employer. More and more of, of people are experiencing employment intruding upon family life. It's also schools, And um, extracurricular activities and and sports leagues and things like that, that that seem to put in such high time commitments and high thresholds just to even minimally participate, much less to really excel. American families are being bombarded like never before from all sides with people saying, You gotta commit, you gotta commit, you gotta sell out, you gotta buy in. And in the ever-increasing demands, usually something has to give at some point. And often when we step back as families and we look at that immense list of demands on our family and on our time, church looks like the last optional thing that's left on the list. So even if we regret it, it's easy to let that slide for a while because we just don't feel like we have any choice. And believe me, I get that. I have a modern, suburban American family with two kids in high school. I'm right in the midst of all the pressures too. There's no easy answers to this. But if I could offer one encouraging challenge, it would be this. To take some time for each of us as Christians and step back and just think down the road about 10 years. Nothing too crazy far, just eight, 10 years. And ask ourselves, Where do we want to be? Ask yourself, where do you want to be as a person eight or ten years from now? Where do you want your marriage to be if you're married? Where do you want your kids to be eight or ten years from now if you're still actively raising children in your home? And as you're thinking about all that, where does passionately pursuing Jesus fit into that? Do you want a radically Christ-honoring marriage? Do you want to see kids that are fired up for Jesus? Then what are we doing now to get there? You see, Jesus said the main thing his followers are to be about is loving one another, and love is a verb. That actually leads us right into the next issue dealt with in this passage, which is another common misunderstanding. And that is that love comes from within. Love comes from within. It comes from the human heart. right? I mean, that's what love is, right? Love is my heart expressed toward another person. So I need to have love in my heart for other people. That's sort of the whole idea. And if I'm not in a loving enough person, I probably ought to dig down deeper and find some love in my heart for other people. But Interestingly, and and to me at least, it's a bit surprising, the Bible paints something of a different picture here. It says actually love is not in the human heart. It's, It's not natural to the human heart. In fact, it's foreign to the human heart to love people with a desire to sacrifice for their good. That's not normal. That's not natural. That doesn't come from within what the Bible would call our sinful nature. Love comes from somewhere else. It comes from outside of us. Love, as it turns out, comes from God. You see this very strongly in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, verses that are very familiar to a number of us. Beloved, let us love one another, there's the command again, for love is from God. Not, beloved, let us love one another, for you know love is from the human heart. So have enough love in your heart for your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's actually kind of weird at first that he he says, here's this instruction, this command that Jesus is giving to Christians, and John is repeating it here, love one another, and then he immediately says, for love doesn't come from you, it comes from somewhere else. Which is kind of weird, like if I'm supposed to love, but love is not in me, then how does that work? That's his point. If we're loving one another, there is an intense connection with God, that's what he goes on and talks about next. Next. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. He's saying, you show me a Christian who is joyfully, sacrificially living for the good of others, I will show you a Christian who is intimately connected with his or her God. Because love comes from God. So the one who is loving is seeing God's life come through them. It's not coming from them, it's coming from God. And the reverse is also true. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God. It doesn't matter if I say, yeah, but I prayed a prayer to receive Jesus, but I got baptized, but I I come to church every Sunday. If there is no love in my heart for other people, if I'm not being transformed to have more love, then God's spirit is not working in me. That's what the Bible is telling us. Why? Because God is love. God is love. That is a huge statement. Basically, it means that not, not that God is a loving kind of guy, like, like there's some standard that's outside of God called love, and God often meets that standard. That's not what the Bible is saying. It's saying just the opposite. God actually defines what love is by who he is. Love is from God. Love is of God. It's defined by God and his unchanging character. God doesn't love us because we're such lovely, lovable people. Which is, to me, simultaneously humiliating and it's a great relief. (laughs) It's humiliating on the one hand because I want to think of myself as special and I want to think that of course God loves me because I'm just such a great guy. But I'll tell you why it's a relief. It's a relief because I know that I never did anything to earn God's love so I can never do anything to unearn it. His love will always be there. God doesn't love us because we're so lovable. He loves us because He is love. We might say it's just who He is. It's what He is. It's His nature. But it's not our nature. It's not my nature. We're naturally inclined as people toward ourselves, not toward others. When I look deep in my heart, I don't find down there, buried deep down inside somewhere, this tremendously heroic sacrificer who wants to lay down his life for other people. The deeper I go into my heart, the more selfishness I find there. I'm willing to give out of love and sacrifice to a certain number of people, mostly my family and maybe some, some close friends, and by the way, even at that point, I'm demonstrating the truth of what the Bible says. Love and sacrifice is a delight when it's truly motivated by love. I'm delighted to sacrifice for my wife, my kids, my family. But if you're anything like me, the, the, the radius of people that you're willing to sacrifice for with true delight is pretty tight. It's a pretty small group of people. And here's God telling us as Christians, love everyone in your church this way to some degree or another like whoa that's a way bigger radius than is natural to me so john says if i want to love more i don't look deep within myself to find more love i've got to look to god who himself is the source of love i need more of him in me not more love from me because it's just not there And if I'm a pastor and I've got a church full of people who should be loving God more, I don't immediately go to their hearts. I don't tell you lots of stories to make you, oh, it's like a Hallmark commercial, and, you know, jerk the tears and and just try to appeal to your humanity and your compassion as if we're going to sort of find some love deep down in there. No, we don't look to our own hearts for love. We look to him because he's where love comes from. Practically, it is contrary to our nature to love this way, but you know what? It's also contrary to our nature to be loved this way. I mean, not only is my radius of people I really, really delight to sacrifice for fairly tight and fairly small, and even then there's limits. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is when I see the needs of of brothers and sisters around me, and, and maybe you can relate to this too, you start getting to know somebody, another christian in your church maybe somebody in your small group or something and you realize wow they're going through a really tough time they're just one thing after the other it's just piling on and there's no easy answers here and it's almost like oh man i just i feel bad just listening to them and then i come face to face with the reality that i don't like feeling bad don't know about you but I don't feel a whole lot of motivation to just dive into that stuff and help that person. It's almost like, ah, oh, I'm just, I, I, I want to shut down. Part of me wants to keep them at arm's length. Man, I care, I, I feel bad, but that's like as far as I want to go. I'll pray for you, which is good if we actually are going to do it. That is a good and helpful thing. But sometimes for me, it's just an expression of the fact that I don't want to do anything else. I don't, I dealing with my own job my own family my own self in the course of a week like that's all i got to give i don't have any more to give i don't have the bandwidth to love people it's just not in my nature not beyond a certain point but you know the the reverse side of the equation is true as well as much as all of us at one level yearn to be loved it's tremendously costly and risky to do that to make my needs known to other people so that they could play a part in supporting me and caring for me in the midst of them, especially because there's just garden variety human pride, again, in my heart. I don't want to admit that I have needs, but you know what? There's also a cultural issue here because we have a culture that says you're supposed to be independent and self-sufficient. That's true coast to coast, but it may be even extra true up here in the Pacific Northwest where we live in God's country. And we're told and we believe you're supposed to be independent and individualistic and you're supposed to be able to take care of yourself. You're supposed to be self-sufficient financially. You're supposed to be self-sufficient emotionally. You're supposed to be self-sufficient in terms of the relationships in your life. Like, nobody ever says that to us in those words, but it comes through loud and clear, doesn't it? So loud and clear that if I have to admit to a few people in my church, even people that I trust, that I've really got this need or this issue in my life or my family's really facing this challenge, we're not handling it well, then I immediately feel like I just said, failure, loser, right here, just, yep. 90% of you have your lives together, I'm part of the 10% that doesn't, I'm a loser, and nobody wants to feel that way. So consequently, we just keep it all to ourselves and try to work it and fix it on our own and be the independent people that we can never quite manage to be. It's just a small example of this. Years ago, I was in seminary. was at graduate school in Portland. And after a class, there was a fellow student. I was just an acquaintance. I didn't know him that well. But... Um, his transportation, for some reason, hadn't worked out. I had a car, I was going home, so he asked me for a ride to some place he needed to go after class. And it was out, it was totally out of my way, but it wasn't that far, it was a few miles away. So I said, sure, yeah, I'm happy to, I got the time, I've got a car, I'm happy to do this for you. He's like, hey, I'll pay you for your gas. I'm like, dude, I'm driving like six extra miles here. I mean, I don't even want to take the effort to figure out what that would be in terms of gas, just forget it, right? I mean, I'm happy to do this for you. So he's like, okay, great. So anyway, we, we take the trip, and when we get to where we're, going he grabs his bag his backpack off the floor of my car and he opens the passenger side door he gets one foot out and then he leans over to me to shake my hand he's like hey thanks for the ride and so I lean back and you know as so we shake his hand I'm like hey yeah you're welcome but in this instant as soon as our hands touched he was palming a five dollar bill and as soon as our hands touched he shoved it in my hand he's like okay thanks he jumped out of the car and slammed it and took off before I could say, I don't want your money, take your money back. But no, he wasn't even going to give me that opportunity, he just took off. And it was, it was such a small episode, I don't even know why I remember it, other than I think what I remember is that feeling. In that moment, I just sort of felt like, I'm looking at this $5 bill, and what just happened? Because I didn't see that coming. And at some level, I can't really be mad at the guy, because I'm him too. I mean, I can I can totally get this. But part of me is like, dude, you just you kinda robbed, you took the joy out of this for me. Like I was just doing you a favor and I was happy to do it. But no, 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 no. You were gonna pay your way and then some. Like, what is it about us that just can't handle somebody else meeting one of our needs? It's not that way everywhere. Part of me realized that this is, at least in part, a cultural problem. Uh, I had the opportunity many years ago to take several short-term mission trips to South Sudan. We were training young pastors. They were young men in um, very difficult, very poor situations. They couldn't get anywhere to get formal Bible training, so we were trying to bring some of the training to them. And uh, Some of the people I went with told me this was going to happen, so I got... I got used to it fairly quickly, but the first couple times it happened, I was amazed. They said, you're gonna find that these guys are not at all inhibited about asking for stuff. So just prepare yourself for it, because like in America, we just don't do that. And sure enough, almost like clockwork, every single pastoral training we would do, every single mission trip I took, I would have between one and three, probably on average, of the students at some point during the week pull me aside and say, I would like you and or your church to sponsor me. To, and what they meant was to pay their way to go to Kenya was the closest country that was much more developed and they actually had Bible schools so they could go to Kenya get a visa live there for several years and get a formal education and you know their situation I mean the, the fact that they're asking didn't offend me in and of itself what really struck me about it was how like uninhibited they were. And it was really jarring the first couple times it happened. I mean, this guy would be just like, "Um, I would like you to sponsor me. I would like you to spend what probably would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of several years for me to go to school, and would you consider doing that? And the most shocking thing wasn't the request in and of itself. The shocking thing was the way they asked it. It's just like, totally uninhibited. I'm poor, you're wealthy. I don't have money, you have money. Would you give me some of your money so I can get this thing done? And there's a part of me that was just like, I can't believe you're asking me that, or at least not that freely. And what I was really saying is, I would never, if I were you, at least I don't think I would. And that got me thinking, why wouldn't I? Because I'm an American. And you're not supposed to let people know you have needs. When Jesus is saying, be involved in sacrificially meeting one another's needs, it is not natural to us, and it is not cultural for us. And that leads us to maybe the most important or at least the most practical of these misunderstandings. The third and final misunderstanding. First of all, love is primarily feeling. The Bible says it's primarily sacrificial action. Secondly, that love comes from within the heart. The Bible says love comes from God's heart. So we need more of love. We need more of him. That really leads us to this third misunderstanding. Christians, especially for us as Christians, Christians ought to work hard at being more loving people, Right? Jesus wants us to love more. We know we don't love enough, so we better knuckle down, we better bone up on this a little bit, and we better get after it. We better spend more money on each other, spend more time with each other. We gotta do this. We gotta make it happen. We gotta dig down within ourselves and find more love in our hearts. We gotta tell more stories. We gotta, we gotta tug on more heartstrings. We gotta create more tears so that we'll have more loving action. But interestingly, the Bible here is painting a very different picture for us. The Love of other Christians is not rooted in raw willpower or the determination to do it. Love for other Christians is rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in the gospel. We left off in verse uh, 9 of chapter 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. You see what John is doing there? Right after having said, love one another, he says, look at Jesus. Look at what Jesus did. In this, verse 10, he goes on, in this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, basically means the sacrifice that turned away god's wrath from us he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins and beloved if god so loved us we ought to love one another so here's this command to love more i need to love more my church needs to love more what are we going to do about it try harder what's so interesting is is john says go love one another And then instead of saying, so then find love in your heart, get after it, he says, go love one another, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. It is only the love of God as demonstrated in the gospel that can get into your life and be so transformative that it can change you. He doesn't urge us to dig deep and find more love in our hearts for one another or more compassion. He says, look to who Christ is, look at who God is for you and the love he's had for you. Loving others better is not something that we do in order to get our community around us to say, oh wow, those are really good Christian people because they're putting a lot of love in action. Loving one another is not something we do in order to get God to be happier with us and more pleased with us. Loving one another is something we do because it is the natural outworking of God in us. And so we look to Jesus. What does that look like? I'd like to close with three practical suggestions. I'm gonna tell you they all start with the letter P and you have to honestly believe me, I did not try to do that. Really, it just came out that way, okay? So how do we love one another? I wanna suggest we ponder the gospel. What does it mean to look to Jesus and get more of his love in our lives. There's some things we can do here. First, ponder the gospel. And I, we emphasize the word ponder here. Uh, the, the, the biblical word for this is actually meditate. And I'm kind of avoiding that word because in modern America, when people hear the word meditate, we often think of like Eastern types of meditation, sort of an emptying your mind and getting you know in balance with the universe kind of thing. This is not that at all. When the Bible talks about meditate, it actually talks about filling your mind, but filling your mind with the right things. Filling your mind with the truth of God and then just thinking about it, pondering it, chewing on it mentally, as it were, over and over, thinking deeply about it. This is really hard in a fast-paced, screen-driven internet culture because we're constantly distracted by so many things. And so if I'm going to become good at pondering the gospel, I may need to find a place in my calendar and maybe even a physical place to just block out distractions, a place to get away from the phone for a little while, away from the game, away from the laundry, away from whatever else is screaming for my attention, and think actively for a period of time about the gospel. So what does that look like? Well, think about God becoming man. Okay, yeah, right, God became man and Jesus, no, 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 no. Think about God becoming man. What do I know about God? What do I know about man? God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's infinite. Man is limited. He is finite. He suffers. God, the infinite, became finite. Just spend some time trying to wrap your mind around that. And then think about the God-man, the author of life, dying, God dying. And not only dying, but dying the most humiliating, excruciating, and painful death a person could die. Now, if you've got any brain power left, then think about the fact that you and I have eternal life because He did that. Well, friends, you can ponder that for days, it will boggle your mind. That's a good thing for us. Ponder the gospel and let his loving sacrifice move your heart. Secondly, pray. We need to pray that God's loving sacrifice would actually move our hearts because in pondering the gospel, we're sort of giving God room to work, but we need to pray that he would show up and work. I can't transform my own life to be more loving. That's the whole point, right, of what we said earlier. Love isn't in me, it's in God. And so I need more of God's life and God's love in me. This is what C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, calls the good infection. He actually pictured it like like a virus. You know, you're walking along and your body has its normal functions, but then this virus comes in, it spreads throughout your body, and then it starts affecting you. You start to get the symptoms and experience the symptoms of this foreign uh, body that has come into your bloodstream. And Lewis actually uses that as an illustration of what God is talking about here in the Bible. The only difference, of course, being getting a virus is a bad thing, but in God's case, it's a good thing. I'm walking around without love in my heart, and I need some of God's DNA circulating in my life in order to make me more loving because only he has the capacity to love sacrificially. So I need to pray that my heart would be moved and that God would supernaturally transform me into a greater lover, not because of me, but because of his spirit in me. So pondering the gospel, praying for transformation, and lastly, putting it into practice. Putting it into practice. Just practically speaking, those of you that are members here of our church, what need are you aware of in the life of another church member that you can play some small part in meeting this week? If you can think of one, do it. I don't have the time. I know. We never do. We make the time when you love people. So let's do it. Make the time to invest, to help somebody physically with a big project they've got going on. Help them financially. Spend some time with them as they need to talk through, walk through a difficult or depressing time. It could take all sorts of forms. But I can lay down my labor. I can lay down my money. I can lay down my time over a cup of coffee. I can give that to another brother or sister in Christ. If you know of a need, meet it even more difficult, maybe you have real issues and challenges going on in your life and you're holding them back. You're not talking to other people because you don't want to feel like the loser. I don't want to be the one. Listen, there is no one. Every single person has issues. The difference isn't between who has issues and who doesn't. The difference is who admits it and gets help and who doesn't. Maybe there is a need in my life, and I am connected with some people that I trust or I need to trust. And maybe this is where I can take a little bit of a risk, pull the wall down a little bit, and let some people around me whom I trust know what's really going on in my life. So if I know of a need, meet it. If you have a need, share it. Lastly, if you're kind of thinking, I don't know, I don't really know of anybody else's needs that I can meet, and I don't really know anybody well enough to let them know what's going on in my life either. And maybe your action step would be what can you do this week to get to know somebody well enough that those things are going to naturally happen? What can you do this week to pursue relationship, to spend time with people, to invest in a relationship such that you'll get to observe what's going on in somebody else's life and allow them to observe yours? Friends, Jesus called us to love one another. And then he said, I'm the only way you can do that. And so I want to pray for his blessing on our church. And as the worship team comes up, I'd like to ask you to join me in prayer. Father, thank you for the incredible love that you have given us in your Son. In coming to this earth as a man, in living, in dying, in rising from the dead, we we know these things, we believe these things at one level. They are simple truths to comprehend at a basic level, so much so that even a very young person can understand and believe them. And yet, that is so profound, we could spend the rest of our lives pondering your love and never exhaust the depths of it. And God, I pray that you would make of us in this church a people who are more full of your spirit and therefore more delighted to offer of our own selves for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ so that the gospel really would be seen, your life would be seen in our midst, in this community, and all around the world. For our glory, for your glory, we ask that you would do this. In Christ's name, amen.